and Psalm 14. Psalm 14. As you're turning there, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are encouraged this evening with the thought, the truth, the hope that we will rise. And what an encouraging truth that is. Because he lives, we will live. We will rise. He is coming again. And may we not grow weary and waiting, but even so, come Lord Jesus. And what a day we look forward to, we long towards that day. Even this evening as we look to your word here in Psalm 4. It's discouraging at first as we see the pervasive nature of sin. That all have sinned. That sin is all around us. And yet it's a psalm that ends with hope. That he is coming again. He's a faithful God. Would you please come, Father? We long for that day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people, and they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his, right, is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Last week, you may remember, we were in Psalm 13, uh, the previous psalm. And if you remember, Psalm 13 is an individual lament. It is David pouring out his heart before God. This is how I feel. This is what it looks like. And then he gets to the end to what he knows to be true, his hope. So we come to Psalm 14. Like Psalm 13, it is a lament. But unlike Psalm 13, Psalm 14 is not an individual lament. It's a community lament. It is the community, all the the Jewish people together, lamenting the far-reaching effects of sin and its consequences. You see that as you work your way through this. The wicked ignore God foolishly. But it ends with this hope. They cannot ignore God forever. It's an interesting note about Psalm 14. It's identical, almost identical to Psalm 53. Why would the same psalm be twice in the Psalms? Well, there's a little bit of difference. And the difference is in this, Psalm 14 is more of a general truth, why Psalm 53 takes that general truth and applies it to a specific situation. 
I'll illustrate it this way. Hopefully this will help make sense of that. Uh, the psalm, like a song, like a river glorious. It's a song that many of us know, many of us love, many of us have sung several times. Last year, on February 1st, my grandmother passed away. And it was a kind of surprising. We knew it was going to be in a couple weeks, but um, last minute, my parents said, you better come now. It looks like it's going to be a couple days. I got there, and the next morning, she was gone by 9 o'clock. So I praise the Lord I was able to get there in time to see her. But in those last moments, we had a, just a special family time. We were all around her. We were holding her hand, and, and we were talking, and, and we were rejoicing, and, and she wasn't able to interact with us. She was there, but she was just, she was in pain, and she was laboring to breathe, and my grandpa took out his Bible, read some scripture, uh, we talked for a little bit, we prayed, and then we sang, and we opened to Like a River Glorious, and we sang this song, all three verses, we got to the last verse, every joy or trial follows from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. They who trust him wholly, find him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. And as we got to that line, I kid you not, as we got to that line, she smiled and she slipped into eternity. And I will never be able to sing this song again because when we get to that line, perfect peace and rest, I have an experience I can look to now. I have seen that perfect peace, that perfect rest at death as someone slips into eternity. That's a picture in my mind. So this, it takes this song, the truth of which has not changed, but it takes the general truth and applies it to a specific situation. I now have a, a picture in my head of that. And every time I sing this song, that's the moment that I go back to, that I reflect on. Similarly, Psalm 14 is a general truth. Man is sinful. God is just. And he's a faithful God who will fulfill his promises. Psalm 53 takes that same truth, almost word for word, and adds just a few different words that takes that truth and applies it to, to the people at that time in a specific situation in which they find themselves at the mercy of these sinners. So that's the, that's the difference between the two, just in case that caught you off guard. Like when we get to Psalm 53 eventually, you say, I, I know we've heard that before. Psalm 14 starts this way, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. A lot of times in the Bible, when it uses the word fool, it's not talking about intellectual shortcomings, but moral shortcomings. He has said in his heart, there is no God. To someone who, has stubbornly, who stubbornly rejects wisdom. I think we understand that. I think we use that, we use fool in that sense today as well. When we say you fool, I'm not saying you're not smart, I'm saying you're not wise. That's a difference. You can be smart and still be foolish. And that's what we see here. He's, he's, he's morally bankrupt, he's fool. In his heart, because he says, there is no God. What he is saying is that God, if he does exist, does not care. What he's saying is, I don't care if God exists or not. 
He doesn't care about me. I don't care about him. It's not the denial of God, but the purposeful ignorance of God. Rejection of God. This person looks around, they see evidence of God, but they choose to ignore that God. And therefore, the song goes on, they are corrupt. They've done, done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand. God continually is looking down. Is there anyone who understands? Is there anyone who seeks after God? And they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The far-reaching effects of sin. What's interesting, though, about Psalm 14 is likely what is in the psalmist's mind is not necessarily all men, but Gentiles. Maybe even Israelites who, who have rejected God. And he's not wrong. That's, the, that's the, the instance in which he's writing here in Psalm 15. It's almost that us against them. You see that as you get to verses 4 through 6. Contrasted with, with the righteous, the generation of the righteous. Even in verse 7, God's people who God will fulfill his promises to. The fool in verses 1 to 3 is mostly those who are outside of the promises of God. Gentiles. But what's interesting is that in, in Romans 3, Paul uses this same passage. And he broadens it. And he uses it to say, all people. And what's fascinating is, is when you come to Romans 3, by the time you get to this passage of Romans 3, 9 through 12, that is a truth that the Israelite at that time, the Jew at that time, cannot reconcile in his head. I know they're bad. I know they're sinners. But surely I can't be that bad. In fact, if you read the first three chapters of Romans, that's how it unfolds. In Romans chapter 1, no one has an excuse. No one has an excuse. And the Jew would be sitting there and he'd say, yeah, he doesn't have an excuse. Look around. And you get to chapter 2, and God is just, and he will judge. And the Jew is saying, yes, he will. And then in chapter 2 it says, even you, you Jew, Jewish, even you, Israelites. Then you get to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There's a radical thought to them at that time. And then he, this is where he jumps to this passage. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The focus of this passage is not all the Gentiles. It's all humans. It's everyone. You are all sinners. And, and that truth, taking this passage and applying it in this way, for Paul in Romans chapter 3, 
would have been confrontational, would have been eye-opening to these Jewish people here in Rome. I am a sinner. I am just as bad. I am no better. I remember when I was a five-year-old kid, growing up, hearing the gospel my entire life, I knew who Jesus was. I knew what sin was. I knew that Jesus rose from the dead. And when it hit me as a five-year-old, when it hit me that he died for me because I am a sinner, I remember that truth just smacking me in the face. I am a sinner. I need salvation. Jesus died for me. That's the confrontation we have here in Romans chapter 3. You know all are sinners. But all are sinners. That includes you. How easy is it for us to apply things to others? They do that. They do this. He says, no, you all. So back to Psalm 14. I think that, that context is important to see how it is used elsewhere in Scripture. It, it's a key to understanding this passage. But as the psalmist is writing this, in his mind at this time, his focus is on Gentiles, those out there. They are the fool. They have said in their heart, there is no God. They have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Verse 4, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Do they not know? Do they not care? They have no knowledge? They eat up my people as they eat bread. They, they consume them. They take their wealth, their freedom. Everything that is theirs, they're consuming them, even their lives. And this, perhaps, is the greatest show of their sin of all. They do not call on the Lord. If only they would. He's the only way of salvation, yet they do not call on the Lord. almost think of verses 1 to 3 or 1 to 4 as the accusation. Verse 1 of the song, the accusation, laying out the facts. They are sinners. They turn from God. They are all gone astray. Verses 5 and 6 is verse, is, is chorus, is verse 2 then. Judgment. There they are in great fear. They've not called on the name of the Lord and they will stand in great fear before this God. For he is holy, he is righteous, he is just. And there will come a day where they will stand in great fear before this God against whom they have ignored, against whom they've rejected. For God is with the generation of the righteous. He is with his people. Psalmist here turns almost in, in accusation again. You shame the counsel of the poor. This is the, the fool. The man who says there is no God. You shame the counsel of the poor. 
poor in that sense as, as the idea of they have no other hope to stand on than the Lord. It's not just that they're, that they're poor financially. They're just, they're totally dependent on God. They are his people and they shame the counsel of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. That's hope for the poor. That's hope for his people. And in the midst of all of this, that is the truth that you cling to. The simple truth that God's people must remember in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this sin, and the, the, the consequences of living in this world of sin, of being sinned against, of being wronged. As verse 4 says, of, of those who, who eat up the people as they eat bread, of being consumed, taken advantage of. This is your hope that the Lord is his refuge. That's the truth that you cling to. Then as you come to verse 7. Verse 7 is almost like, like the, the chorus. The concluding truth that God's people are to meditate on. Not only is God our refuge, but it starts out, God is salvation. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Jerusalem, a desire to see God fulfill his word. God who, who dwells in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle. <coughs> Salvation would come out of Zion. He's longing for this day. What will this day look like when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people? This is not captivity as in the Babylonian captivity. This was probably written well before that. It's more of the idea of the captivity of being in this sinful world. Captivity in which they find themselves. This is the freedom to be God, who God has called them to be as a people. God's people. To flourish in the land that God has promised them. A nation of priests called out by God. Let Jacob rejoice in Israel being God. Kind of repeats the same phrase there. Emphasis. Jacob and Israel, it's the same idea. All the people of Israel rejoice and glad. Obviously the same idea. Rejoice. In the midst of all this sin, of all this wrongdoing, you can rejoice, Israel. For salvation is coming from Zion. The Lord will bring back the captivity of his people. He is your refuge and he will be your salvation. Obviously, this is a psalm that's very pointed to God's people. And you see the, the, the progress of the lament, as we talked about last week, moving from, from, from a complaint or a truth or, or situation to eventually trusting in God. We see that here. It starts with sin, moves to justice, and then ultimately to hope. But what's the hope for us in here? We're not Israel. What's our hope in this psalm? 
Our hope is this simple fact that God is salvation. For we would agree with the psalmist that all have sinned. We would agree with Paul in Romans 3 that I have sinned. I am the fool who has said in his heart there is no God. I am the one who is, who is corrupt, who has done abominable works. I am the one from whom God looks down and he says, there is none who seek God. There is none who is worthy. I am the one who has turned aside. I am the one who is corrupt. I am the one who does no good. For all have sinned. But our hope is that God is gracious. Our hope is that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. Because the first two sections in this psalm, verses 1 to 6, are general truths that are true. We are sinners. And God is just. God is gracious. And so the question is then for us that we could ask ourselves is how do you respond to those two facts? How do you respond to the fact that you are a sinner before a holy God? A God who is just. A God who will not let sin go unpunished. Will you reject him like the fool? Will you accept Will you repent? I think that's the simple application of this psalm. There's, there's simple truths here. We are all sinners. God is just. God is gracious. There, there, there's even hope in verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There's, there's hope there. They could call on the Lord, but they don't. The question is, do you call on the Lord? Have you called on the Lord? Are you the fool going on to reject and ignore God? Or are you the righteous who have turned to God, who have trusted in God? Romans 3.23 is the verse that, that many of us are familiar with. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we often pair that with Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. And that's our hope. Without that fact, Psalm 14 would be extremely bad news. But it's good news because God is gracious. So our prayer focus this evening, how do you take a, a psalm like Psalm 14, and how do you use the truths in this, how do you apply it to, to when we then go to prayer? I think first, it affects how you approach God in humility. I approach God humbly because I know that I have sinned. 
I know that it's by His grace alone that I can come before Him. So I come in humility. Secondly, I think we come thankful as objects of His grace, as those who have been saved by the grace of God alone. As those who, who have a future, who have a hope, who now have promises of God, of, of eternal life, that He will complete in us what He has be, begun. I think, like, like Israel, their hope led them to rejoice and to be glad. I think our hope leads us to rejoice and to be glad. To be thankful in our prayers that, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God is faithful. We pray, hopefully, we pray in hope. With this desire that even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the day that we look forward to. That's the day that we long for. Like they long for the day that that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. We long for the day that Christ will come back for his church. We long for that day. And so now, in a dark world, in a sinful world, with sin all around us, we pray hoping for that day, longing for that day. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So as we split up and we pray, I would encourage you to keep your prayers along these lines. Come before God in humility. Come with a thankful attitude. Praise Him for His grace, for His mercy, for His faithfulness, for His justice. Rejoice in who He is and what He has done for you. And be hopeful, because He is coming again. He's coming again. So we're going to split up, and we're going to pray. I would encourage you along those lines. Is there any big requests that need to be mentioned before we split up to pray in these last